Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Once again, we're focusing on arguably the biggest issue in town, the housing crisis. This is part two of two. Last week, we invited three experts to tell us what they thought. This week, it's the turn of Londonist writers to give their view. You've been getting in touch, and thanks for some very warm comments as well. At Blonde Girlfriends uh, says, The podcast today is superb. It's amazing the info one can disseminate when one has no agenda other than to inform and engage. Yeah, absolutely the principles we're working to. Uh, Ray Wolford, meanwhile, recommends we talk to peoplebeforeprofit.org.uk and uh, he says their direct action and occupations changed policy. Different idea here from Peter Smith, who says some good thoughts in the last podcast, uh, but notable that none of them opted for the one policy that would have the biggest benefit, land value tax. Meanwhile, a commenter on the Londonist website, uh, who, may, who may not be entirely disinterested party, uh, they're called Jen Rent, uh, says, great podcast, well worth listening to, interesting ideas. But how do we get this on the political agenda? Which party leader will admit they need to bring London house prices down? A very good question. Um, and a, a comment almost by way of response from regular listener uh, Dominic Stevenson, fantastical Dom on Twitter. He says, very impressed by App Generation Rent on Londonist Out Loud this week. Shame your people don't vote or we'd achieve something. Well, it seems obvious to me that this question of whether renters vote is a big one. Politicians aren't going to act on behalf of renters if renters aren't going to put the X in their box come polling day. And it seems to me that the whole vulnerability and instability of renters' precarious position is geared to them not voting at all. I mean, if you're moving around from borough to borough, for example, let's say every six months, every year, whatever it might be, how on earth are you going to get engaged in local politics in that time? Why should you care what's going to happen to the area unless you happen to be a very benevolent sort indeed? You've got no stake in it. And more than that, just the practicalities, as we've seen as the general election approaches of getting yourself registered to vote in a particular property. I mean that a, a piece of paper will come through the front door maybe uh, a year, maybe six months ahead of the uh, polling day, which means that if you're in a rented property, if you, you're just arriving, well, you might be arriving after that piece of paper has been delivered and thrown away, and then it's a whole heap of trouble to try and get yourself registered if that's your first priority. And let's face it, it is not your first priority when you move into a new place. In fact, is to uh, uh, locate the 
a local uh, pub and chip shop and find out where the train station and the bus stop are and what's your quickest way to work and where can you put your bike without it getting nicked. I think even the most politically engaged person does not make their first order of business finding out the name of their local MP. Or you might be there in the uh, rented property when the piece of paper turns up but you've either a, a full awareness that you'll be leaving the property before the election and moving somewhere else altogether so that doesn't work for you or it might just be part of that temporary mindset where you're just passing through why should you get involved and so I think there's a, a, a serious problem. The uh, increasing number of people who are uh, renting and moving around have uh, very little incentive in some ways to vote. Well, of course, I'm not letting people off voting. It's your vote. It's been fought for. And uh, I really think if you care about this stuff, you've got to go out and you've got to claim your vote. But speaking in the last few weeks, as I have to experts and journalists working on this subject, it does seem clear that there's a, a psychological distance between the person who has a bricks and mortar investment in their local area and the, the quality of their area is directly reflected in the value of their house and with somebody who's been moved from pillar to post and uh, may well be uh, resenting that whole process as well. Some of the rental models that we talked about in last week's episode, for instance, let's take the German or French models. Yes, you're renting, but there's a much clearer sense that you have rights and that there is stability and that you've got a stake. But of course, regulatory change that will affect that position is a question of political movement. And that's only going to come about one way imagine through votes being cast in a particular way through an engagement which seems for the reasons i've just sketched somewhat unlikely if it's true that renters don't vote then that wouldn't surprise me at all and maybe i'm finding myself through having these conversations warming to an idea that so far hasn't been suggested on the show at least which would be some sort of compulsory voting Anyway, that's just my view, and it is most certainly worth less than that of those who have appeared on the show and who've spent substantial chunks of their career specialising in the question of housing. Thank you for your comments. Keep them coming, and while you do so, we will go to Londonist HQ to meet uh, three Londonist writers for the second part of this Londonist Out Loud housing crisis special. Well, hello, hello. We are at Londonist headquarters for the second part of a double bill on housing. Last week, you heard some experts on the subject of housing in London giving their view on the crisis and possible solutions to it. This week, I'm with three writers for Londonist who've been focusing their attentions on the same vexed question. John Elledge, Rachel Holdsworth, Beth Parnell, Hopkinson. Hello. 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 Um, what have you been up to? What's been occupying your mind on this subject rachel who i should i should apologize in about rachel has a cold you may hear a snuffle or two i have not got a cold i have the flu of death that's what i've got <laughs> um so yeah so my my iq is like halved at the minute actually right at the minute i, I went to speak to the people at nine elms and you know they're building eighteen thousand homes three and a half thousand four thousand affordable homes and it was really interesting talking to them um because that's all being done without public subsidy Basically, they're all the everything that's been done at Nine Elms is being done from contributions by the developers. So yeah, you've got all these skyscrapers and it's luxury flats, and they are inevitably being flogged off to you know investors and everything. But the reason they're doing that is because I mean this is, this is partly the problem. It's it's how we build and it's how we fund. 
because there's no mass government investment in housing, it's all having to be done privately. And the only way they can do that and deal with stupidly high land prices in London is to build luxury flats for a huge amount of money and then use that money to build affordable, in inverted commas, housing and more infrastructure. And it's, it's just, it's one of those horrible Catch-22 situations that we've got ourselves into. This is the only way we can build. Beth, what have you been working on? Um, well, I've been looking at um, a lot of the regenerations that are going on in London at the moment, particularly where housing, uh, social housing is being um, replaced by affordable housing and the social housing allocation has been cut down. One particular example which comes to mind is the Aylesbury Estate in Woolworth in South London. The estate is being demolished and rebuilt, um, but the allocation of social housing is being reduced. The same thing is happening um, in Leightonstone, where an extra tower is being built and um, the current occupants of the two social housing towers are being decanted, as the council have it, into the new tower. Um, But again, the allocation of social housing is being reduced, so there will be some residents who won't have a home to come back to, basically. John, among the subjects you write about for City Metric, uh, housing features prominently. Oh, I've mostly been feeling terribly depressed, in all honesty. I spend a lot of my time, as all right-thinking people do, shouting on the internet about land use restrictions, because I, I'm a firm believer that the only way out of this crisis is basically to, to build more bloody houses. And the, the difficulty that you swiftly run into with this is that people by and large don't want to um even people who are at the sharp end of the housing crisis who are facing extortionate rents or sort of complaining they can't get on the ladder often don't make any connection between that and the supply and demand curve at work here and the fact that we just don't have enough housing to go around as far as i'm concerned the only way out of that dilemma is to build more housing which probably means uh, a number of things it probably means building a higher density in future it probably means building building higher than we have before and it probably means looking again at the green belt and thinking which bits of it are actually worth protecting and are there any bits of it that maybe we could put to better use but you make these arguments to people and you swiftly find they really don't want to do most of these things. There are very strong, very powerful campaigns out there to protect London's skyline and to protect this intensive farmland on the edge of London and all those lovely golf courses and pony clubs. Those interest groups seem to me to be far stronger than, than the interest groups currently in favour of building more housing. So I've mostly been crying myself to sleep in all honesty. Yes, listener, it's going to be 40 minutes of fun and frolics. <laughs> well, that is indeed the message that was coming. Well, no, that's that's uh, that's an incorrect representation. But the experts that I spoke to, who, uh, by the way, listener, if you haven't listened to uh, last week's episode, do give that your ear, as that gives some sense of the different options that people think are available. There was a general agreement that there is a housing crisis, different uh, solutions posited in order to come through to the other side. One thing that it seemed to me to be a bottleneck in all of the ideas that were being offered was political will. It seemed in all cases actually to boil down to political self-interest, political short-termism, and everything has to be funneled through that. And I wondered if you are perceiving the same sorts of problems in your research. Uh, I chaired a debate at a conference run by, by Generation Rent, whose director Alex Hilton was one of your guests last week. On, on the subject of rent control, and I, you know, the, this was a room full of people who are you know, very angry about the housing crisis, angry enough to have shown up to a conference in the middle of the week about it. 
these are people who are properly furious about this situation. And still, nonetheless, you ask them if they want to sort of look again at where we build housing. Silence. Nobody does. So, you know, I've gone for a long time. I've been working on the assumption that the politicians were kind of behind the electorate here and that there was a massive surge of enthusiasm for house building uh, coming along the, the train tracks and that politics was kind of ignoring that. Having been at that conference, I now sort of think it's the other way round. And if anything, I think the politicians are kind of a bit ahead of the curve because they are at least talking about it. I mean, no one's coming up with any comprehensive solutions, but it is at least on the agenda. Whereas I think a lot of the the, 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 the voters out there haven't quite got their head around what is necessary to fix this and, and you know how, how we are going to get out of this mess and, the, and that sacrifices are going to have to be made. I, I think politicians are kind of responding rationally to the incentives the electorate are giving them. I think there is a chance that that will change over time. I mean, the percentage of, of the British electorate uh, made up of uh, only occupier households has already plummeted from a high of, what was it, about 80% at one point, 75, 80? It's down to, to 63 now, I think, if not lower. So, you know, for the first time, we can envision a future in which you know, less than half the electorate owns their own home and at that point all bets are off and yet we're all homeowners and yet we're all ranting about we need to build more houses because we all accept um that even if house prices go down that is actually good for us i mean i own my own flat but i'm stuck in it because if i want to move on i can't i can't afford to move move somewhere else it seems to be this mindset that we've all got into that rising house prices are always good and you always want to have that bit of scrap land across the road which is technically green belt but it, it's there and it, I, I don't know is this some kind of weird british green and present land mindset that we're into but yeah no, I, I entirely agree that we've we we, we talk as if the British electorate is split in two. And I was just slipping into it myself, that we talk as if, you know, all owner-occupiers only benefit from rising prices. And that is just complete nonsense, because unless you are planning to downsize or in the last home you're ever going to own, then if you ever want to sort of climb the ladder, then you probably still need prices to be a bit lower, because it doesn't matter if you've got a, a nice one-bedroom flat if you can't get a, a family home one day when you want to have kids. Um but while we discuss, while, while the debate takes on those terms, it's kind of little wonder to me that politicians think, well, 60% of the electorate's still own. We can't possibly bring house prices down. Sorry, young people. There's a crushing indifference to change in the housing market. And I think this is certainly something that you're seeing as well, John. There's a lot of talk about what we should do and what we could do. But because it would involve such a big sea change for so many people, I think there's less of a will to do it particularly from the point of view it is going to be fairly short term everybody wants to build more houses but nobody's actually prepared to find somewhere to do it this touches on what john was saying about um, people wanting to build on greenbelt and the resistance from various groups to stop that happening Um, i think those you know those people have got more political clout than perhaps the groups who are driving for more house building. I felt as I've been interviewing people about this that we're constantly chasing the blame through uh, all sorts of different circuits and I think perhaps if we'd had a bit more representation of uh, the political class then it might have been shifted once again. You know it's it's a vast combination of factors and I think underlying it all is a lack of will to change basically and I think that also follows through into the um, rental sector and uh, making changes to 
tenancy reforms there? Possibly because the, the lack of will is the people who are affected about this are the people at the, the bottom of the ladder, aren't they? The, the, the poor people, the people who don't have any genuinely affordable housing. There is a rant to be had later about the terminology affordable housing and we, we, we will get there. And you know, then you've got the, the renters who historically have been younger people. That's changing as the demographics of, of renting and who can afford to buy changes. So what you've actually got is you the people who most need to be helped and the people who are most affected by the housing crisis are the people I mean, would we agree with this, the people with the least political power? There is that to an extent, but it's also that the benefits of building are kind of diffuse across society. It's like lots of individual people, lots of people, an entire class of society would benefit if we built more housing. But if you are talking about building housing on that particular bit of land over there, there are very specific people who, who will lose out from that. And it is easy to organise five people who live around the same field into an action group than it is to organise, you know, nine million people in private rent, all of whom are working long hours to pay that private rent. The other thing that I think you need to bear in mind in this debate is that we have, as a society, we have a very odd idea of what the Green Belt looks like. I mean, people talk about the Green Belt as if it all looks like the Chilterns or the North Downs, and it's just complete nonsense. Like, 59% of the Green Belt within the boundaries of London is intensively farmed agricultural land. It's basically fields covered in chemicals that are terrible for the environment, that are not open to, to the public to any great extent. And, you know, if you did walk along there with your dog and the dog ate something, it would probably drop dead of poisoning. Um, this is not nice land here. But because that's not everyone's sort of mental image of it, you kind of talk about, well, maybe we should redefine the green belt a little bit to deal with the housing crisis. The shutters instantly come down and people start going, no, no, not going to do that. There is no chance whatsoever, because if you do that, then we're going to end up with the whole of England concreted over. Which is a nonsense, because, yeah, yeah, I mean, how much of London, the country's built over, it's a tiny percentage. 2%, I think, it's 2 or 3. It's it's of that order of magnitude. It is a very, very small number. And that's not just houses, that's everything. Does that mean, then, that... uh, some point but perhaps it continues someone somewhere has been putting forward a mirage of greenery and pleasantness around us for what political purposes or i don't think it's a specific individual i think it's more of a sort of cultural pathology i think it's because so much of england's idea of itself is tied up in this notion of green and pleasant fields and everything also it's the branding thing at work here isn't there we call it the green belt so you kind of and you, you imagine this sort of ring of country around London and just the fact the word green is in the name suggests something, you know, natural and beautiful. It doesn't suggest, you know, scrubland or, or even car parks or quarries. You know, all the other uses, all the other land uses, they're actually get folded into green belts. So I think the name itself is, is problematic here. I think there's a temptation as well. Um, people, when they think of building on green belt, they think of acres and acres of council estates um, and I think you know that, that's, that's been one of the things that has put people off. So there's a, a little bit of nimbyism going on there but based on a false premise? Definitely yes So if people don't want to build on Greenbelt if people don't want to build out then the other option is to build up which people also get really cross about. I mean the whole, the whole skycrippers thing uh, there was a press release out today. I think there's like 260 odd towers uh, in the offing for London. Obviously, not all of them residential. But skyscrapers also get people very exercised. But do you just want to get hold of these people and shake them and say, where are you going to put people if you don't want to build out or you don't want to build up? Do you think that that is because um, they're sort of harking back to the, the, the 60s and the 70s with the, the tower blocks? 
you know, concrete central post-war London. Um, and they think that that's what building up is about. And they don't see it as being, you know, necessarily a good thing. London is really not that densely populated as, as cities go. Also, the most densely populated bit of London is, is uh, surprisingly, it's Kensington and Chelsea. But that's not because it's all tower blocks. That's because so the most buildings there are four or five storeys, whereas most buildings in much of London are one or two. So if you look, London is, is less densely populated, not only than, than places like Hong Kong and Singapore, where it's all these sort of gleaming glass tower blocks. They're also less, London is also less densely populated than most European cities. Because if you walk around Paris or Vienna, then the average height of buildings is you know five or six storeys. So that's already, you're looking at two and a half or three times population in any space that you can get in london i think because of the way london has built up in the past we kind of have this sort of idea that either it's little semi-detached houses with gardens or it's tower blocks and that there's nothing in between and it's 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 nonsense but because we're not familiar with the options in between we don't kind of instinctively think of those when we talk about building at higher densities I wanted to ask about these these small changes that have been suggested and we heard last week from Danny Dawling who seemed to think that the process by which we could rectify things was all about a few slight adjustments that would set things straight. He was against any sudden swinging changes and that sounds in keeping with what you've been talking about but what he's asking sounds counterintuitive. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If he's asking, for example, for a tax on houses, which could be easily achieved by remortgaging houses and paying off this tax, which would require, yes, change, but also something that's in the short term counter to instinct. It seems counterintuitive to me that somebody who's got their house and everything's lovely for them, that they should in any way support the idea that they then have to pay a tax. Whether or not that goes ahead is one thing. But what about the people who are renting? What changes could be expected of them? It seems we focused a lot on homeowners, but actually, are there any changes that those who are renting could make? The difficulty we run into in the political conversation is that like housing is kind of ma- is now salient enough that every party feels the need to talk about housing a little bit. Like, they all know they're going to be mocked if they don't have a housing policy. 
But all the housing policies they're producing are a little bit half-hearted and nonsensical, and they know they're going to get away with that because it's not going to swing anyone's vote. I mean, I, I, one of the reasons I started this by saying how depressed I was was partly because I really thought housing was going to be a massive issue in this election campaign. And David Orr, who you spoke to last week, is, is you know, very committed to making it such. I just don't think it's going to climb that high up the agenda because nobody is going to switch their vote from Labour to Tory on the basis of housing policy. Why not if it's such a pressing issue? And we all seem to agree it is. Because this is, I mean, even by the standards of British politics, I think positions are pretty entrenched in this election. I mean, it's very, if you look at the polls, the, the vote share for the the smaller parties has been dotted all over the place. But the two, the two big ones, the two that could conceivably provide the next prime minister, have been pretty firmly entrenched on sort of 32, 33% for quite a while now. There's just not enough motion going on for them to kind of take this kind of risk, I think. We were actually having this conversation back in the 2012 mayoral election when if you got hold of all the candidates in private, they would they would say that they thought the biggest issue was housing, but they weren't talking about housing, they were talking about transports. And I, I think my theory for this was that um, transport is something you have to deal with every single day. You get on the tube, you get that daily reminder of, of how much you're paying for your fare. Housing, unless you are kind of at the bottom of the ladder and you are forced to move every six months, you don't actually think about it every day mm-hmm. and I think this is possibly why it's it's still percolating through everybody's minds and we're going to have to reach a proper crisis point like even worse than we are at the minute for it to be a proper national issue where everyone's talking about it all the time There's another reason why transport is higher on the agenda than housing and that's because in transport there is no sort of class of, of the general public that benefits from higher rail fares, mm. whereas there is this sort of fault line. Uh, it's not quite where people think it is, but nonetheless, there is this sort of fault line between people who stand to benefit from higher house prices and people who are getting shafted by it. Um, and that's a much more difficult issue to address politically because any move you make to improve the lot of one set of voters runs the risk of, of upsetting another. I find this remarkable, actually. It seems to me obvious that any party that came up with something credible on housing would potentially gain the votes of all the people who are floating around uh, hoping to drum together a deposit to get onto the bottom of the ladder. Ah, but they're not necessarily the people who vote, are they? There's this there's this theory that, you know, you've, if the people who vote are sort of older, home-owning, you know, very kind of in, in, entrenched, and there's this idea that young people who would be the people who benefited most from a decent housing policy, there's no votes in it. There are 9 million people in private rented accommodation, but they don't vote as a unit. It's not like a, a renter's movement because some of those people will be Conservatives, some of them will vote for la- Labour. You know, they're all over the political map and there's not. it doesn't matter, no single housing policy is going to kind of gather them all in one place. I think as well, particularly in London, it's a very diverse city and there will be probably be a lot of people living here who aren't eligible to vote anyway. Um, Alex Hilton had a lot to say in last week's show about reforming the rights of tenants and extending tenancies, looking at some of the European models. What are your thoughts, Beth, on that? Uh, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think um, it's, it's certainly something that we, we need to do. Um, one of the reasons that we're having this crisis at the moment is because the private rental market is just filled with horrors. If it was better regulated and uh, tenants had proper 
rights and guarantees, then renting would be more appealing uh, and it would also prevent landlords from being able to take advantage, letting agents from being able to take advantage of both landlord and tenant and it would just become a much more viable option for people living in London. Really, the, on what we've been talking about so far is, you know, building and, and house prices. But really, you've got two sort of separate but, but linked in issues. I mean, there will always be some people who want to rent and for whom renting is the best option. And yet, for some reason, we are in a situation where protections for tenants are kind of non-existent. I mean, it's terrifying how much power landlords have and still complain about that you know oh i can't kick a tenant out at will kind of can actually the knock-on effect that how the how the two things are related is that as more people have no option but to rent in the private sector the private rented sector expands partly because we've got hardly any social housing anymore and people can't afford to get on the housing ladder themselves so you've got this 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 group of people who are being screwed and the regulation that's nothing to do with the house price crisis that's nothing to do with people not being able to buy it's just another addition of why housing in this country is a mess oh right so you're disconnecting the issues this is very much people who can't get on the ladder who are swimming about in a shark pool beneath it yeah i mean you can sort of blame the fact that we don't have enough houses um on the fact that we haven't got enough regulation what is the situation with the percentage the proportion of somebody's income that they're typically spending on rent is that has that remained uh, a constant or is it moving it's through the roof obviously i can't remember the figures off the top of my head i think i believe it's about around 50 percent of people's take home yeah. and is that on the rise it has yes. risen yes very much so the, the, the definition of an affordable rent is a third of your take-home pay and it is way way more than that I think it's also that there is a connection between the the house price rise and and the you know, the situation for renters. Um, one of the reasons it's hard to make renting a more secure option is because landlords are not only a pretty big voting block; they're a pretty big voting block that dare I say include quite a lot of MPs. And you know, from their point of view. It, it is difficult being a landlord. You have to wor- you have to worry about this house you don't live in, and you have to suddenly respond to someone's sort of beck and call, and they say the boiler's gone. There are difficulties. Uh, you know, it's not it's not all easy. But they can only see it from that point of view. They can't see that you know tenants don't feel that they're somewhere is their home because they can get chucked out uh, at a month's notice. And also, the more you know, the higher it is connected to house prices because the higher house prices have gone, the more attractive property has become as an asset class as opposed to just somewhere to live. And so, the more landlords have piled into the sector, so the higher prices have gone, so the fewer people can get on the ladder, so the more private rent is. It becomes a sort of vicious circle like that. It is all certainly connected. Are we finding that, because I'm not sure we've touched on this in any of the interviews, below the property ladder, I think I was only half joking about the shark pool, does that mean that people are being squeezed out of rented accommodation as well? Is that starting to happen? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yes, yes. I mean, every six months or so, I sort of look at, at rents and see you know where's the cheapest you could get if you're on the minimum wage and stuff um and even every six months i can see rents in some really cheap areas of london or what used to be cheap cheap areas of london going up by rents are going up by 100 pounds a month every six months now that's stupid that's ridiculous that, that is that's not sustainable and yet it's happening there seems to have been this perception as well that renting is somehow inferior 
and it doesn't need to be. And I think people would be much more keen to rent if the, you know, if the regulation around letting agents and landlords was better. Well, the rental situation just seems to be with, with rents skyrocketing as they are. It means that you can't gain any foothold, never mind whether it's on the, the property ladder or something else, because such a proportion of your money is going out each month on that, that you're locked into that and saving for a deposit seems fanciful. So we're talking about the definition, perhaps, of what affordable is and the disparity between the definition and the actuality. Uh, it's time possibly for Rachel's rant. Oh, yeah, my rant about affordable housing. So when people like us, normal people, talk about affordable housing, what we mean is housing that normal people can afford. But the phrase affordable housing has become co-opted and it actually has a technical meaning. And what affordable rent now means if you're a housing wonk, if you're part of the government, um, is that is now the replacement for what used to be social housing, as in council housing. So social housing can be a rent level of between about 30 to 45% of what's called normal market rent. So what you would expect to pay on the private market if you went to a state agent and what you would buy. Affordable rent is now what is being charged by housing associations and anybody who's building what used to be social housing, now affordable rent housing, using government money. And there is a rent, there is a rent level cap associated with that and it can be anything up to 80% of market rent. Now that is not affordable by anybody's stretch of the imagination. It's not always up to 80%. If you get money from, from the GLA to build housing, it's meant to all average out across London to about 60%. I was talking to Lambeth about Nine Elms, and they have a borough-wide set of about 64% of local market rents of based across the whole borough. But it's still a hell of a lot more expensive than old social rents. And that is just the way things are going and the reason it's risen is because the governments are putting less money into house building and they're expecting housing associations to recoup that money from tenants i think it's worth putting this 80 percent figure in context um the redevelopment of of mount pleasant which for those who don't know is a great big post office depot in the sort of finsbury area they're building some flats there where the affordable rents in some of them will be 2.5 to three thousand pounds a month and that's like if you if you just think of what that is as an after tax income, you have to be earning you know mid to high forties to be able to pay that, and that leaves you with no actual money for food or you know heating bills or anything. This is not affordable by any stretch yeah. of the imagination, but this is where we've got to. It's strangely Orwellian. Yeah. And you can't just walk in to, to a housing association and ask for an affordable rent, affordable rent in sarcastic air quotes, affordable rent uh, flat, please. You have to qualify for one, which is kind of the, the same or the, the similar criteria that used to be for, for social housing. Um, I was in a meeting about housing at City Hall a year or two ago and Kit Mulhouse, who is a councillor, at Westminster was genuinely arguing that um, oh well you know it, it's okay if you've got one flat in Pimlico on on an eighty percent of market rent because that's subsidising uh, the three bedroom flat on at forty percent of market rent for the family but the costs of a flat of eighty percent of market rent in Pimlico are going to be way way over the account um, amount of money that somebody who would qualify for an affordable rent again sarcastic air quotes um, flats. Um, would 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 they be earning? So, 
they're going to be needed to rely on housing benefit. So again, you've got housing benefit subsidising what should originally have been social rent housing just because the government didn't originally put in the money from the front end to build the damn things. And it's the whole thing is, is ridiculous. And what's worse as well is that the, uh, the social housing that does still exist is being sold off under right to buy. But the, is that still happening? Yes. Um, in fact, the discount um, has increased to, I think, I believe, is it 100000 now? Which... But my brain just fell out of the back of my head. We're having this discussion and they're still selling off the social house. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, some councils are starting to create, um, I suppose, what are basically um, trusts in order to hold on to their social housing. But there's still a lot of social housing that's being sold off, but the amount of money that they're making from it is not enough to build a new house. So the whole thing is just absolutely crazy. The money from right to buy, is it even being ring-fenced for new housing anymore? No, never was. No, no. Yeah. Never was. Well, this is exactly the problem that I suggested might exist with Alex Hilton's plan to raise money through taxation and invest that into more social housing. There's no guarantee at all, is there, that that money will be thus invested? There, of course there isn't. There never is with a British state. But nonetheless, I think there is a strong case for a higher tax on, on housing, which is simply that... One of the reasons so much money has poured into housing is because it's not only been a pretty guaranteed source of growth of your pot of money over the last 30 years or so, it's also remarkably, it's subject to remarkably few taxes. It's a much better thing to put your money into than, than almost any other asset class. If we started char- charging taxes on housing at a more sensible rate, then it will become less attractive as an investment and that in itself would probably help deflate the bubble just a little bit. And that would bring down... Uh, I was astonished to discover that affordable housing is actually pegged to the inflating housing market in percentage terms, so that would presumably help on that score as well. Yeah, the, the idea of housing being some way that you live in, not an investment. Kind of amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So we're all just in awe of that whole idea, I think. What, of living in houses? Yeah. My God, I've been living in a bivouac for the last year and a half. Well, it's, it, it, we, are, we are at a point, aren't we, where housing is not being lived in, so actually we are divorcing ourselves even from the idea of living in the stuff. It seems quite clear to me, from what I've heard today, from what I've heard from the experts for last week's show, that things are stuck, completely stuck. Do you actually believe that things are going to get unstuck? What's your projection? You know what, I... I wish I could believe it, but I don't because what needs to happen and the amount of bloody houses that need to be built, it's just not there. And it, you know what? Even if we did build more houses, I'm not even convinced that they would be of the right tenure level and the, in the right places and at the right affordability level to, to do it. I mean, yeah, we need to build more houses, but they need to be the right kinds of houses and... I'm not sure the funding model is even there to do that. Having started this conversation by saying how depressed I was, I'm actually more optimistic than that. One of the candidates to be Labour's selection for the mayoral race next year, David Lammy, is is basically going around talking about rent control and building massive amounts of social housing. Now, there's a lot of things that would have to happen for him to be in a position to implement those, I don't, which, for various reasons, I don't know if those things are going to happen. But nonetheless, the fact that a serious candidate for that job is proposing quite radical solutions 
in a way that you're not really hearing of in, in the general election campaign at the moment. That, to me, suggests the debate is shifting. How quickly it will shift to the point where we can we actually see some serious action is a different question. But I think we are moving in the right direction, though, at last. Beth, how optimistic are you? I'm reasonably optimistic. Uh, I mean, I think there's, as John says, I think there's a bit of a way to go. But people, I mean, it's at least it is something that people are talking about now. And people are starting to talk about having answers to these problems. So I, th- I think we're getting there, but I don't think it's going to be something that's going to happen too quickly. The other thing... I think it's worth saying is that so much of the growth in property prices has come from the expectation of more growth in property prices. It's sort of, I don't know if a bubble is really the right word, but it's certainly a sort of bubble dynamic where more money is piled in because London property is seen as a safe investment that can only go up. So I've been wondering for a while how big a wobble we'd need to have for things to move pretty rapidly in the other direction i think if prices in london were to drop by 10 percent, a lot of the investor cash would want to pull out and we'd drop by a lot further that doesn't solve the fundamental supply problem because in in some ways it might actually make it harder but nonetheless i think there are there are reasons to think that where we are at the moment is we're not going to keep going in the same direction forever but you want a, a cooling down rather than obviously rather than a crash a crash would be traumatic for a lot of people. And so, you know, some kind of period in which prices just kind of stay reasonably stable and, and incomes catch up to them would be the ideal. But that's not generally how these sort of market cycles have ever worked, really. I think. So I, I think the idea that we could escape a crash might be a bit optimistic. Oh, God, I've, I've nudged you back into depression. I've, I've, I was depressed all along. I just, you, you just caught me on one of my manic moments a minute ago. I've kind of gone to the other end of the scale again. I mean, the, the problem is something horrible is whatever happens from here on in, it's going to be pretty a bloody horrible for someone. It's just a question of who. And I'm kind of reaching the point where I would rather it was horrible for the rich people with roofs over their head than the poor people who have been forced to move every six months, to be blunt about it. On which... <laughs> positive note we will have to start to draw to a close there's one item of business left though um because the conversation was flowing so well we didn't pause as we usually do for a sponsorship message midway so uh it's at this point that i mention that we're generously supported by audible.com uh the audio book service i use them um some great titles on there and some titles that our guests are going to recommend john I've recently enjoyed the complete cabin pressure, the Radio 4 sitcom, which isn't about houses, but is about planes. Rachel Holdsworth. Uh, I've just finished um, a book that was given to me for Christmas called Love Nina by Nina Stibb. And it's a collection of letters that she wrote to her family while she was au pairing for a family in Primrose Hill uh, in the 80s. It's got a lot of Alan Bennett in it, which is a good thing for me. Beth Parnell Hopkinson. Um, I've just recently finished um, David Mitchell's The Bone Clocks, um, which is about uh, pretty much everything, really. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Um, Speak book, is it? Yeah. Uh, And so we come to a close uh, today. We're going to summon an ambulance immediately for Rachel Holdsworth, who uh, we're pleased has survived this long. Thank you to my three guests today. Whatever next week's episode is about, it is sure to be uh, cheerier than this uh, very necessary conversation. And uh, we give the final word to John Ellich. Build more bloody houses. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.